0: Preachers and, st- and professors through the years that were storytellers. And uh, many of those uh, folks just had this ability just to really, I think it was kind of an act of mercy now and then. You'd ask them a question and they would just proceed to start telling you a story. And especially the professors, some of them have just this comprehensive history of whatever the subject was and they would just go on and on. But I can remember one particularly that when he started answering the question, people would just set down their pens set down the, you know, lay off the keyboard and just settle in and just kind of watch the journey unfold because he was going to take them through this long-winded journey through whatever history that he wanted to give. But he gave you a a clue. And and at some point in the midst of this story, he would say, well, here's your answer. And everyone picks up their pen (laughs) and writes down, here it comes. He would tell you, this is the moment. Perk your ears up. Pay attention. This piece will be on the test. Here's the answer to your question. Um, And it was actually really helpful because a lot of times your mind was drifting or wondering, and it was just good every now and then to kind of reset and get yourself back on the page and say, okay, this is what we're about, and here's what I was actually asking initially, and this is is the answer. This is what that, that moment here. Revelation 16 is something of that moment. Now, Revelation is a book that you can get lost in. Many of you at this point probably are lost. Um, And I think it's good now and then to kind of re-anchor ourselves with what this thing is about. Revelation 16 is the answer to a question that happened all the way back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Like, it's from the beginning of the book, or the letter, this is what we know. What does it say in 1-1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. That's what it's all about. John was given a revelation by the God of the universe because he wanted to show to John and to others the things that must soon take place. Revelation 16 are the things that will soon take place in Revelation 1, chapter 1. Now the reason why you know that is because of the recurrence of this verb, well it's translated as that must soon take place, the things that will become are happen. It's a word, ginomai, that shows up in Revelation 1, chapter 1, there are things that are going to become, are things that are getting ready to happen, it happens again in verse 19 of chapter 1, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this, the things that are going to happen. That word genomize right there. So he tells us in the first chapter the whole purpose to this thing is to let some folks know of some things that are getting ready to take place and actually getting ready to take place soon. And I think that's one of the interpretive keys to Revelation is just take chapter 1, verse 1 seriously. Take it at face value. That's what they're actually trying to tell us. Something's getting ready to happen. And and that word genomize, that things that are coming or becoming, Is now clustered in chapter 16. It's all over in chapter 16. There's something like, I think, 22 references, two that I just mentioned in chapter 1. There's one in chapter 22, I think one in chapter 21. And something like 12 of the remaining uses of that word, that verb, are right here in chapter 16. Chapter 16 is the happening, the things that are coming. And if you followed along, I'm not guaranteeing that everyone has, but if you follow along, some of the stuff we've been talking about really has been kind of historical review for them. John wrote to these seven churches. These seven churches are dealing with some things, and he tells them, really, in some level, the story of what happened and what is happening so that he can now tell them what is getting ready to happen. A lot of times he was talking about things like Pentecost and the founding of the church and the ascension of Jesus, all things that had already happened. And he's getting them ready for the fact that you're now dealing with, you're, some of you are dealing with persecution. Some of you are really flubbing up your prosperity. Some of you are you know, doing all sorts of things. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. But here's where you are at right now, and here's what's getting ready to come. And that can be complicated to unpack in the apocalyptic language of Revelation but this is that moment where things are getting ready to come. This is that near future. The answer to the thing that troubles them so much. And the answer is the seven bowls. So I want to walk through each of them. Um, but just before we do, look. I mean, we're going to look at the first four bowls this week. But if you want to understand something of the bowls, compare them to what we've already seen. We have these different things that have been unfolding. We had these seven seals that were opened up so we could open up a scroll, that the scroll then opens up these seven trumpets that start kind of blaring the horn, announcing what's coming, and now, really, now you're reading all of this, now it's all unfolding, and now we've got the bowls. But that's been a progression. When the seals were broken, we read about judgments, but they were judgments of a fourth of the earth. And then you started blowing trumpets, and then the third of the earth was, being, uh, was getting judged. So there was like from partial judgment that was getting bigger, and now with the seven bowls that unfold, the whole earth is in view. There is a judgment that is poured out on all of the earth. That's one of the keys to what's unfolding. What's happened before was an anticipation, getting ready for what was to come part of that is those things that happened before, there were these little kind of micro judgments, if you will, that were calling people to repent, and get ready. Because now, really, there's no repentance left. Now it's the judgment. Now it's the time to pay the price. The other thing that I want you to hear, we're going to echo it again and again as we go through, but these judgments, these seven bowls will echo for us the Egyptian plagues. We've already talked about that some last week, but there's a kind of Three plus seven this is the we talked last week. There were initially there were these three plagues that were poured out on both both uh, the the people of God and kind of the pagan world in the same way that the first three plagues in, in exodus were poured out on Egypt and Israel now. Israel's away. The people of God have been pulled back. Christians are off the scene now, and now there is a judgment that is coming exclusively on the earth dwellers, everyone else in the world, those who have abandoned God. And it echoes the Egyptian plagues in sometimes very explicit ways. And then the third thing I want you to notice is what's in view is a kind of tearing down of the entirety of creation over the course of these seven plagues and of course here seven here are the days of creation echoing there by the end of this week by the end of these seven plagues the creation order is going to be pulled down and destroyed in order to be remade and that's what's going to be coming towards the end of revelation and the chapters that unfold so there is this judgment that is unfolding here there's a the bold judgments are a kind of remaking of the world into a new creation Starts with the first bowl. So he he heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So these seven bowls of God's wrath. And we described it last week. It's this picture of of a blood judgment. He's pouring this blood out on the land. Uh, And he is pouring out that martyr blood that's been sacrificed. has now become an agent of his judgment. Verse 2, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. A couple of things you can think about with that, that, um, that pouring out on the earth. First off, it's, it's, there really is kind of an interesting, explicit parallel in each of the bull judgments of the days of creation. So on day one, it's the creation of the heavens and the earth. Here's the judgment upon the earth. So that's one thing is it's the whole of, the whole of creation is in view. But the earth has had two meanings throughout Revelation. We've tried to point that out, that the earth is not just talking about the whole earth, but it's also talking about Jews. It's earth versus sea, the sea of the Gentiles versus the earth, the the land of God's people. This is a focus of a judgment on the Jews who have rejected Christ. And the first judgment that is poured out on them is this appearance of these sores all over their body. These painful sores. And notice, this is a judgment that is directly upon them. A lot of things that happened in the trump- trumpets were a kind of judgment that was indirect. You know, this, the, the world will do something to them. Now there's a judgment that's happening directly on them. It's an explicit echo of the sixth plague, uh, the plague of the sores. What happens in the sores, it doesn't kill anybody. But in the, it's not only excruciatingly painful, it also... In, in, in Judaism, would mark a person as unclean. It would exclude them from the sanctuary. I that, think that's significant here because now these sores are appearing on the people of the earth, the Jewish people, those who have the mark of the beast. We talked about that a few weeks ago. These are the folks that, marked by the beast, worshiping the beast, they have, in, in accepting the mark of the beast, they have allowed themselves to be included in the culture around them we looked at the mark of the beast a few chapters ago we a few weeks ago we saw the mark of the beast was something given to those that gave them economic power they were allowed to participate in the world around them because they bore this mark this mark 666 the number of the beast a lot of that was related to just give a brief review it's related to the the number 666 is related to solomon and uh, this his his corruption it's a picture of the people of god abandoning uh, their ways. Solomon would betray his role as the king and really become a false king. This is the people of God, the people of Israel, in accepting this mark and aligning themselves with Rome, are turning their backs on God. And so this mark that was a mark of inclusion for them, now, because they are marked with these sores, they have a mark of exclusion. They're included in the world around them. They've bought their way into the halls of power. They're accepted by those around them, but they're excluded from God's house. It's a picture of a compromised faith. In their pursuit of power, in their pursuit of acceptance, they, they've said all the right things in the culture around them. But now they are afflicted. And in, and in, the, in the plagues, in Exodus, the sores, it actually calls out explicitly that the, the sores are afflicted, particularly the Egyptian sorcerers the ones who are doing the magic of this false culture, this godless culture. They are afflicted in the same way. Here they are marked because they have engaged in idolatry, because they have compromised their faith for the sake of economic power. Um, They are committing the same sins, really, that Jesus condemned in his temple action. He turns over the table of the money changers because they've reduced God and reduced the worship of Yahweh to a form of commerce and money-making. And they are you know, celebrating greed and power to the exclusion of the, self, of the worship of God. That picture of a compromised faith, Jesus cleansed there. Here in Revelation 16, the first bowl is cleansing that. This mark of inclusion in the world has become a mark of exclusion before God. They can't do both. You wanna be in the world's camp or do you wanna be in God's camp? Now there's a point where you're gonna have to make a choice. These folks have made their choice and it's not going to go well for them. That's the first bowl. The second bowl, verse three, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. So, whereas the first bowl is poured out on the land of the Jews, here it 's the Sea of the Gentile that received this judgment, so both earth and sea you see both the whole world in view, earth and sea, but also both Jew and Gentile. It intensifies what happens all the way back in chapter eight, verse eight and nine, where there is this the burning mountain is thrown into the sea, and it turns to blood we 've seen this before in Revelation. That burning mountain we talked about then is a picture of Sinai. It's a picture of the people of God who are supposed to be a light to the world and a light to the nations, and they're betraying that. But now they are producing corruption. The people of God, in betraying God, are actually spewing out evil to the world. And they are, in a sense, causing this thing of the sea that's turning to blood. And there in chapter 8, a third of the people die, a third of the ships die. Um, here it's the whole sea that's being corrupted here the whole sea is becoming like the blood of a corpse like every living thing that is now dying all of it's dying and of course for us it echoes both the second and the third we'll talk about them each separately but they're both echoing us that initial big plague in turning the sea to blood Uh, the bloody nile and the judgment that came upon Egypt in Exodus, the key to that was it was exposing or revealing what was already true about Egypt. Why does the sea turn to blood? Why does the Nile River turn to blood? The Nile River turned to blood because Egypt had already turned it to blood. What had Egypt done from the birth of Moses? At that time, they were committing, trying to commit genocide. They were trying to kill off all of the Jewish people. By killing all of the all of the sons that were born, Moses was saved because of one woman. But he was saved in the Nile, in the river. But this the the blood was being shed on the land, and in a sense, that judgment, that turning the Nile to blood, which is that's their lifeblood. The Nile is the life of Egypt. He's turning it to blood, in a sense, saying that what they've already done in killing. They've already produced this judgment upon them. The Nile turning to blood is simply revealing what was already true about the hearts of the Egyptians. So it is here, this Roman beast has been killing the saints, has turned its back, it turned its back on the church, it's persecuting the church. This Roman beast is now bearing the price for that blood. This judgment is being poured out on the sea of Gentiles, and the judgment is making evident what was already true about those who rejected Christ. Judgment here is a kind of revelation, a revealing of what's already in the person's heart. It's simply calling a spade a spade, saying this is what's happening. You go to the third angel, verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And here, this, again, echoes the third trumpet where there's this star that falls under the temple, and the temple becomes poisoned, and it poisons the springs and rivers. That's In in some way, logically, it feels like it's kind of reversed because it's actually, this is the source. You poison the temple. The temple, the people of God, Jerusalem, is meant to be a river of life. Jerusalem is meant to be a kind of new Eden. There are, there are the rivers that flow out of Eden. is meant to be a life that spreads throughout the world. The rivers of life become a source. Eden is the source of this life for the world. Jerusalem, in turning their back on Yahweh and rejecting Yahweh throughout their history, they turn Jerusalem from a source of life and vitality for the world into a defiling source of poison and death here's that 's what 's happening here is that Jerusalem has becoming that the rivers and the springs of water are poison, and they 're poisoning the land. This is an echo of the third day of creation. You separate the land and the water, so the land are sustained by these rivers that 's why the rivers and the third judgments and seals and bowls and and here in the trumpets that you have i 'm sorry the bowls and the trumpets, you have all of these echoes of rivers that keep showing up on day three in these things because it's an echo of the third day of creation but you've got this idea that this judgment is flowing out there's the corruption that is flowing out uh, and it is the source of the egyptian plague you know the gentiles are wrong because jerusalem is wrong jerusalem has failed in its obligation in rejecting christ they have rejected the source of life something's gone wrong there But then, you notice here, as soon as he says that, these bowls don't take long to go through. You get the details pretty quickly. But then, there's this dialogue, or really this moment of praise. Verse 5, I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. For they've shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Back and forth, this kind of dialogue of praise between the angel and the altar of all things. The altar is kind of embodied here, speaking. So what is happening in this back and forth? There is this celebration of the justice of God in his judgment of the world. God is just. God is the Holy One. God is the one who is and who was, and notice we've seen this already, but again, this is, there is no is to come, because the future is now present. Uh, he is the one who is, he is the one who was, and what he's doing right now is making the world right. You brought these judgments, and so they, the angel celebrates the justice of God, longing to see the world made right. His judgment is just and righteous, because God is just and righteous. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It's a principle what they call lex talionis, an eye for an eye. There's real justice here. They're shedding blood, so now their blood is shed. The world is being made right with the picture of raw, complete, balanced justice. The one thing that we don't want to experience ourselves, we don't want to be treated like we deserve, And the judgment of God that is unfolding in Revelation is quite explicitly simply treating people the way that they deserve. That's what the justice of God, that's what the judgment of God looks like. We have a hard time hearing that. But the angel says it, the altar echoes, the one who's, the altar in a sense, the one who's participating in the judgment says, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just, true and righteous are your judgments. The judgment of God expresses the high and holy character of God. That's why I I think it was a helpful pairing to hear Revelation 16 in light of Psalm 103. As we read that, we celebrate a God of grace and God who delights in in healing and a God who delights in restoration. That God is being celebrated here as he judges. We struggle to hear that. I think we struggle that be, with that because we understand that the wrath of God, which is what started all this back in verse 1, when we hear the term wrath and we think of anger, typically, we don't trust that in ourselves. We probably shouldn't. Even think about all of the challenge we've had as we are having this conversation about racial reconciliation, what sparked it in our culture this summer. This debate over when is police force justified? When is it excessive? On the flip side, when are protests justified and when do the riots become excessive? Maybe when the protests become the riots, they are by nature excessive. But you wind up talking past each other. I mean, that's been the exercise of the summer is how to talk past each other because one person wants to talk about police force and when is it excessive and when is it justified, and the other wants to talk about these protests that became riots and say, well, these riots, we've got to solve this problem. But in both cases... Both sides are really struggling with this problem of excess and abuse, that a person can be justified in doing something. In the one case of a police officer can be justified in showing up on the scene and arresting a person or confronting a person or encountering a person, and yet their use of force can be unjustified because of the circumstances. In the same way that a person should legitimately protest and legitimately express concern or anger or frustration over the state of the world, and then when they become riots and become destructive and start destroying property and killing people, they're in excess. Because we see that in ourselves. Our anger is often our source of sin. The Bible says it, in your anger do not sin. Not to say that all anger is wrong, but anger for us is a source, constant source, Because anger, in our anger, we lose control of our emotions. We become self-consumed, self-centered. And so what may begin as righteous anger becomes an unrighteous anger. And we see that in ourselves all the time. Most of us can acknowledge that and see that struggle. And then the mistake we make is we want to apply that to God. Well, if God's angry, if God's wrathful, his anger must reflect my anger. And so his anger must... At times be excessive, at times be just hyper emotional, times just caught up in the moment. He's just seeing red. And none of that is true. None of that is true here. That here, the angel, the one carrying out the judgment, and the altar, the one receiving the judgment, both say, Yep, God, you're doing exactly what you should because you are just and you are holy and you are righteous. And they are celebrating the judgment of God. Because God is paying back the unrepentant for their shed blood. Because the martyrs that have died were in fact a sacrifice and now God's justice is being revealed, answering the prayer of the martyrs who died, say, how long, O Lord, will you make this right? God's judgment is just and righteous. God's wrath is just and righteous because that's simply who he is. Everything he does his just and righteous, because God is just and righteous. It's his essential characteristic. His holiness covers everything that he does. Then you have the fourth bowl, verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Once again, the fourth bowl intensifies a judgment that is already seen. Now, this can be a little deceptive. We can overlook this. Because if you look at the fourth trumpet, what you saw is that a third of the sun, the moon, and the stars were spent with darkness. And as a third of, essentially, the lights start to go out. And day four is when they, God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. Those, those lights start to go out. But in a sense, this is the same kind of judgment. What he's doing now, instead of turning the dimmer down, he's turning it up. So the sun that is supposed to be a source of life and vitality, now the heat is turned up, and this Roman sun is igniting the land. And there is a burning on the people because the sun is no longer a refuge. Matthew chapter 13 speaks of a sun that will scorch, the shallow-rooted plants in the parable of the sower. This is that sun that is scorching and revealing the shallow roots of the plant that is not meant to survive. But the, that plant is, in fact, burned up by the sun. Psalm 121 speaks of God as a refuge. He is our sh- the shade on our right hand. It's God who protects us from the heat of the sun. That protection is gone here in the fourth bowl. And now some are being burned up because the sun's full power has been unleashed on the land. Deuteronomy 13 calls upon them to actually burn an apostate town. Let the apostate town, the town that has turned against God, be scorched with fire. God is doing exactly that. And here, again, sea versus earth, the fourth bowl is poured out on the land. It's poured out on the Jews, and it's really the Roman sun that's turning up that heat. The Romans worship the sun, as most of these cultures did. So the sun god is wielding its force. Historically, that's really what happened. And I think the thing that's soon taking place here, as John writes this, is the Jewish war which begins in AD 66 and, and lasts through eighty well, the first phase lasts through eighty seventy, But really, it's a 70-year war, 65 years or so. It'll last through about AD 130. And in the course of that, you really have three phases of that war. You will see an untold destruction, and you will see an attack on the Jewish people that will not be seen in history until... 1939. It's an unbelievable effort to genocide. In the next five years, if this is written, say, in the mid-60s, over the course of the next five or six years, over a million Jews are going to be killed or enslaved. Over the course of those three phases of that war, several more million will die or be enslaved, and the Jewish people will be reduced from the majority population there in the land of Israel to a scattered minority, having been almost completely eradicated by, the Jew, by, by Rome in the course of 65, 70 years. It's an unbelievable thing that's getting ready to happen in their own history. And in all of that judgment that's being poured out, how do people respond? Scorched by the fierce heat, verse 9, they curse the name of God who has the power over the plagues. That is, they don't repent, but and in fact the judgments reinforce the justice of, Of God's wrath. They curse his name. They did not repent. They will not give him glory. They're cursing his name and showing that the judgment is just, the judgment is necessary. It's a tough piece. Really, frankly, it's only going to get rougher next week in the second half of chapter 16. But what do you do with it? Well, a couple things I suggest to you. One, we recognize first that God's wrath is a good, And necessary part of his righteousness. We are inclined not to trust wrath. We're not inclined to trust anger, and we probably shouldn't in ourselves. We should hold it very loosely, and we should be very distrustful of our own anger uh, because ours is capricious, ours is disproportionate. But the wrath of God isn't like that. The wrath of God is always appropriate, and it's always a just response to real wickedness. And, And if we ever think, well, do we really want a God of wrath? Well, It really depends on do we really believe there's evil in the world. And frankly, a lot of people today don't believe that. But if we believe what Scripture teaches, that there really is true evil, if we truly believe that there's real injustice, that there's real wickedness in the world, then we need a good God to hate it. We need a good God that looks at that wickedness and that evil and says, that's not something I want. God's wrath is a good and necessary part of his righteousness. Second, God's judgment is a destruction that restores. The wrath of God in chapter 16 is total against all evil. And a lot of what he does throughout Revelation, he takes evil and he turns it on itself. Evil bears its consequences. You shed blood, you receive blood. You get what you, 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 get what you have given. You receive justice. But in the course of doing that, he is tearing down an old creation to restore a new one. He's bringing something better out of it. His rule is just and righteous, and it ultimately will be a blessing to those who follow him. The wrath of God is not the end of the story, but the beginning of the story. It's how he's responding to the evil in the land, how he's responding to the evil of the world in order to build something better. Three, our act of allegiance, our response, is to persevere. That's really the big message of Revelation. We're gonna say it a lot. Hopefully you can get that message by the end. If everything else confuses you, if you anchor yourself in the fact, what do we do in response to all this? We persevere, we keep thriving, we thrive in faith, we choose a side in repentance, and we glorify our God. Uh, our worship is our declaration of allegiance. And in the midst of hard times, in the midst of challenges, in the midst of uncertainty, when evil seems to triumph, when we face injustice and we feel like there's nothing we can do against a tide of injustice, we stand with God, knowing that at times the martyrs will cry out, How long, O Lord? But God will always answer. As long as it needs to be, He will answer in time. This is the happening. This is the thing that Revelation's always been about. This is the thing that's happening soon. And when he tells them that it's happening soon, what it tells those churches is that they know that they can hang on. And we need to know the same thing. God is unfolding his plan in history. He is doing what he does, but he is always just and righteous. And if God is just and righteous, we too can hang on. We can persevere in hard circumstances. The challenges that we're facing personally, the challenges that we see around us in our country and in our world, we can face those circumstances and persevere in faith because our God is just and righteous. In blessing and in judgment, we can persevere in faith. Let's do so. Let's pray. God, I pray your blessing on those who are right now struggling in the midst of personal hardships, those who are dealing with the battles of physical illness dealing with the struggles of depression, dealing with the struggles of isolation and loneliness, those who are facing this, the overwhelming implications of an unjust world, unjust world around them, and are struggling with hope. God, I pray that we can be a people who persevere in faith. Remind us, convict us of your justice, your righteousness, of your holiness. Help us to be a people who persevere because of who you are, because of the victory that you have claimed for us in Jesus Christ, in his name. Amen.